ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Teddy Wayne. Thank you guys. Uh, thank you all for coming and thank you to Skylight for having me. Uh, to give you a sense of what this book's about, I'm going to read for, I don't know, like 45, 50 minutes or so. Okay, in 10 to 12 minutes, don't worry. <laughs> I just want to see who is ready to leave. Um, but I'll, I'll explain briefly. It is about a Harvard freshman who becomes infatuated with a girl in his dorm. That infatuation quickly blooms into obsession and uh, essentially stalking. So I'll start at the very beginning. David, my mother said, we're here. I sat up straight as we passed through the main gate of Harvard Yard in a caravan of unassuming vehicles rooftops glaring under the noonday sun. Police officers conducted the stammering traffic along the designated route. Freshmen and parents lugged suitcases and boxes heaped with bedding, posing for photos before the red brick dormitories with the shameless glee of tourists. A pair of lanky boys sailed to Frisbee over the late summer grass in lazy slanted parabolas. Amid welcome signs from the administration, student banners interjected, and economic inequality. Silence is violence, and Yale equals safety school. A timpani concerto pounded in my chest as we made landfall upon the hallowed ground that had been locked in my sights for years. We'd arrived. I'd arrived. For the tuition we're paying, my father said, carefully reversing into a spot. You think they could give us more than 20 minutes to park? My parents climbed out of the car and circled around to the pop trunk. After tugging in vain at my door handle, I tapped on the window. Where'd he go? I could hear my mother ask. In here, I shouted, knocking louder. Sorry, I thought you got out, my father said following my liberation. I checked in under a white tent teeming with my new classmates and received my room key and a bulky orientation packet. As we approached Matthews Hall, a girl emerged from the building. Seeing our hands were full, she paused to hold the door. I stepped inside, and my orientation packet slid off the top of the box in my arms. Thanks, I said when she stooped down to get it. You would have been completely disoriented, said the girl, smiling, her nose streaked with contrails of unabsorbed sunscreen. She seems nice, my mother said encouragingly as we shuffled upstairs to the fourth floor. The doors were marked with signs listing the occupants in their hometowns, stamped with Harvard's Veritas shield. Beneath these were rosters of previous inhabitants, surname first. My rooms read like an evolutionary timeline of American democracy, beginning with a procession of gilded Boston Brahmins, gradually incorporating a few Catholics, then Goldbergs and Jacksons and Yangs and Guptas, and in the 1970s, Karens and Marys and Patricias. My mother was impressed to discover an NPR correspondent on the list. I'd never heard of her. In 50 years, I thought, I'd humbly recall this moment in career retrospective interviews, insisting that never in my wildest dreams did I imagine my name would someday be the one people noticed. For the time being, though, I knew it didn't quite emblazon itself across the heavens like a verbal comet. David, blandly all-purpose, a three-pack of white cotton undershirts, crew neck, medium. Alan, an ulcerous accountant in Westchester circa 1957. 
then Faderman, long A sound for the first vowel, an entity who is hardly here, or maybe he just left. Wait, who are we talking about again? It was as if my parents, upon filling out my birth certificate, couldn't be bothered. Tap is fine, they always told waiters. But now my ID card read, David Allen Faderman, Harvard student. My roommate, Steven Zenger, had yet to arrive. I claimed the front room, envisioning it would lead to impromptu visitors, a revolving door of campus characters popping in, lounging on my bed, gossiping late into the night. My parents took my student card and fetched the remaining stuff as I unpacked. After setting down the final box, my lawyer father checked his watch. Thirteen minutes, he announced, pleased with himself. Seven minutes to spare, my mother, also a lawyer, chimed in. Through the door, the hallway hummed with the chatter of other families. Well, said my mother, surveying the room, this is exciting. I wish I were starting college again. All the interesting courses and people. And I bet you'll be beating the girls off with a stick, my father added. There are a lot of late bloomers here. My mother scowled. Why would you say something like that? I'm just saying he'll find his tribe. He turned to me. You have a great time here, he said with the hollow brightness of an appliance manual congratulating you on your purchase. Just be yourself, my mother advised. You can't go wrong being yourself. Yep. Sensing more imperatives and prophecies, I opened the door to let them out. Just one little thing, David, she said, raising a finger. Sometimes when you talk, you do this thing where you swallow your words. I did it when I was younger, too. I think it comes from a place of feeling like what you say doesn't matter. But it's not true. People want to hear what you have to say. So try to enunciate. I nodded. It helped me before I spoke to think of the word crisp, she said. Just that word, crisp. After our own swift hug, my mother prodded my father into initiating an avuncular back patting clinch. They seemed comfortable enough with my sisters, but for as long as I can remember, my parents have acted slightly unnatural around me, radiating the impression of Good Samaritan neighbors who dutifully assumed guardianship following the death of my biological parents in a plane crash. The door swung shut with a muted click. My bereft mattress and bookcase and motionless rocking chair stared at me like listless zoo animals. It was hard to picture people gathering here for fun, but a minute later someone knocked. It was my mother. Your ID. She held out my student card. It's very important. You can't open the door without it. Don't forget it again. I didn't, I said. You guys did. I resumed unpacking yanking the price tags off a few items. Earlier that week, my mother had dragged me to the mall, where I decided to adhere, for now, to my usual sartorial neutrality of innocuous colors and materials. It would serve me these first few weeks to look as benign as possible, the type of person who could be friends with everyone. I was standing inside my closet, hanging shirts, when the door flew open, and my roommate bounded into the room, his equally enthusiastic parents in tow. David, he said, almost didn't see you, Stephen. He walked over with his arm puppetishly bobbing for me to shake. If I look different from my Facebook photo, it's because I got braces again last week, he said, but just for six months or five and three quarters now. All hopes I had of a roommate 
who would help upgrade me to a higher social stratum, snagged on the gleaming barnacles of Stephen's orthodontia. <laughs> he would fit right in at my cafeteria table at Garrett Hobart High, named for New Jersey's only vice president, where I sat with a miscellaneous coalition of pariahs who had banded together less out of camaraderie than survival instinct. We were studious, but not collectively brilliant enough to be nerds, nor sufficiently specialized to be geeks. We might have formed, in aggregate, one thin mustache and a downy archipelago of facial hair. We joked about sex with the vulgar fixation of virgins. We rarely associated outside of school and sheepishly nodded when passing in the halls, aware that each of us somehow reduced the standing of the other, that as a whole, we were lesser than the sum of our parts. While Stephen's mother fussed over his room's decor, his father uncorked a geysering champagne bottle of hokey puns and jokes. Matthews became Matthews. So now students can finally find out how learning math will help them later in life. When his son remarked that the internet in the dorms was free, Mr. Zenger chortled uncontrollably. Free, he roared, clapping his hands. Oh, I didn't notice that when I wrote them a check last month. What a bargain, free internet. <laughs> After a prolonged maternally teary farewell, Mrs. Zenger smothered even me in her arms and assured me I was about to have the best year of my life. Stephen invited me into his room. Nestled into a beanbag chair, he linked his hands behind his head, his collared shirt's elbow-length sleeves and circling hangman figure arms. There's a lock on my door, he said, so feel free to come in wherever you feel like hanging out. Okay, I said, lingering at the threshold. So what are you majoring in, he asked. I mean, concentrating in, he threw in conspiratorially, now that we were in on the secret handshake of Harvard parlance. We don't have to declare until sophomore year, right? Yeah, but I already know I'm going to concentrate in physics. How about you? What's your passion? What are you into? I was into success, just like everyone else who'd gotten in here, but admitting that was taboo. Though I'd excelled in all subjects, I didn't have the untrammeled intellectual curiosity of the true polymath. I was more like a mechanically efficient Eastern European decathlete grimly breaking the finish line tape. Yet almost anyone could thrive in a field that consumed them. To lack ardor and still reach the zenith, that was a rare combination. Because I never mentioned my grades to anyone and seldom spoke in class unless I had silently rehearsed my comments verbatim, my academic reputation never approached the heights of Alex Hines, yearbook prediction, Fortune 500 CEO, Hannah Ganeev, poet laureate, or Noah Schwartz, President of the United States. When the college acceptance list was posted, my classmates were shocked that I was our grade's lone Harvard-bound senior. David Federman's yearbook prediction? Question mark, question mark, question mark, fill in later, underlined. But my teachers weren't. My letter of recommendation from Mrs. Rice made that much clear. Eager to read her formal appraisal of my virtues, I overstated the number of copies I needed. When she handed me the stack of envelopes, I giddily retreated to the boys' bathroom, tore one open, and inhaled her praise like a line of cocaine in the fetid stall. She wrote that I was, quote, one of the most gifted students I've encountered in my 24 years teaching English at Garrett Hobart High already in possession of quite a fancy prose style that sometimes goes over my head, I must admit. 
Although I can sense the, imman the immense strain human interactions put on him, whether in classroom discussions or individual conversations, it would be wonderful if David shared his observations more in class with his peers, who would surely benefit. But I have the utmost confidence that, with a properly nurturing environment, this young man, somewhat of a loner, will come out of his shell and be as expansive and eloquent in person as he is on the page. I looked at Stephen, the extroverted physicist in training. The trajectory of his impassioned career already plotted with a suite of differential equations he'd memorized. His shell long since shucked. I guess I'm still waiting to really get into something, I said. And if that doesn't happen, there's always a life of crime. <laughs> Stephen waited a moment before laughing. Thank you, guys. So I'm very happy to entertain questions from the audience. I would hope so, but I think it's maybe more of like a queasy, morbid laughter that you're wondering why you're laughing, or in a way that like Lolita's funny mostly throughout until the end of the book, yet he's committing pedophilia throughout it. And so it's a way both to leaven the subject matter, but also to complicate it that uh, it implicates the reader, makes the reader complicit that you sort of partially get on both Humbert Humbert's side and David Federman's side, or ideally one should. And to have that partial queasy identification is of interest to me as both a, an audience and, and as a writer. And humor is a way to do that. I notice everyone does mention that it starts off as like a comedy of manners and turns into something else. And I was talking to a friend before this. I feel like that opening is sufficient. Like you don't want to start off with just <laughs> pedophilia and hope the reader stays with you. So there's a way to like ease you in with like some lukewarm water before turning on the cold. And um, so it, it, it seems like an obvious thing that you'd want to make the character less repellent, less abhorrent at the beginning, and maybe throw in some humor or, or a sort of sharp social comedy uh, before it turns into, devolves into something uh, more disturbing. Did you say that Harvard primarily said you could draw from experience, or were there, were there other definitely made it easier to you know, not have to do research, although I did. I was at Harvard in the middle of writing this or the beginning of writing this and hung out with I think seven or eight freshman boys one night for a long night <laughs> um, while playing videos and then tried to get into a final club party and was barred entrance um, as two girls said, don't let him in, he's weird. And so <laughs> No, it's just me. I was just on my own at that point. <laughs> like a Wednesday night, like a 30-something man trying to get into a college party and being denied entrance. Um, but then also the Harvard, it, it could have been, you know, the idea is that any sort of elite 
expensive U.S. News and World Report ridiculous rating college um, in that it's presented as the sort of academic wing of late capitalism and places that perpetuate class distinction. They let in mostly, almost exclusively, with few exceptions, children of the elite, turn them into the elite themselves in hopes that they will spawn children again who will go there and donate money in the meantime. Um, but then Harvard specifically, more than even like a Yale or Princeton, because it just has that global reputation, and David is almost psychopathically obsessed with status and ambition, and for him only, I'm sure he would have been fine at Yale, Yale and Princeton too, but something like Harvard is what he's been, had his eyes on the whole time. And uh, the narcissism of small differences between these schools, the fact that Yale equals safety school, which there was at the Harvard-Yale game, the Harvard students chant that, which always annoyed me. Um, and that had things gone a different way in the admissions process, had an admissions officer, different person seen their essay, they would have gone to Yale, not Harvard instead. They just ended up there. So the arbitrariness of it too at that level, but mostly because it just it's the considered the top and David is so greedy and entitled, only that's good enough for him. Liz, did you have an inspiration for David? Like Myself. No. Um, uh, I, well, a few literary characters, Tom Ripley, in the town of Mr. Ripley, he's similar to. Um, and then in real life, the thing, the person that somewhat triggered this idea was I was watching, uh, I somehow ended up in 2013 watching a video of the courtroom sentencing of a guy named T.J. Lane, who the year earlier had shot and murdered three classmates in his high school cafeteria. And at the courtroom sentencing, he, is, he's, he speaks to the victim's families and says a truly horrible, monstrous thing. And is so deficient and devoid of empathy. It, it was disturbing, and I thought, this is an interesting kind of character, too, after the, the disturbing elements wore off at some point. And so I was interested in writing about someone who similarly had this, was like missing this empathy chip, but Lane, in that video at least, comes off as such a monster, so extreme, that I don't think that would make an interesting protagonist. So how about someone who, I thought, like someone who's more human, who has some identifiable qualities, and David feels like an outsider, feels alienated. These are things most people can identify with at some point in their lives, especially when you're starting a new place at college. Um, and so people, uh, people who like the book at least seem to have this feeling of, they identify with them, yet there's this also psychopathy to him that they don't hopefully don't identify with. Um, so T.J. Lane's, I think, influenced it. And then the, after I'd finished a draft of it in 2014, Elliot Roger, who's better known to everyone, went on that rampage in Isla Vista and killed, I think, six people. And then published his manifesto, I guess before that, which I'd read. And it was just riddled with sort of sexual frustration, feelings of invisibility. And so the book was initially more of a straightforward depiction of obsession. And then after reading that manifesto and seeing this, it became more influenced by contemporary gender politics and this sort of the anger, the aggrieved anger of the young man who feels uh, marginalized and invisible, even though in both their cases, socioeconomically, they're doing just fine. Yes, Brian. And if equally, why there? Um, I think, I, I hope and think it's sort of 
better writing um, in that I know my craft better than I used to, but I also recognize this is not a heartwarming book in the way that the first two, the first one especially is, and the second one mostly is, even though it's more mixed. This is a, what's the opposite, heart-chilling book. I mean, it's not something that people feel necessarily great about the world after, but it, I also think it still want to have an effect on people, and, and I think it be, can be just as provocative in that way. Um, so it's strange to put something onto the world that you recognize is not going to brighten someone's day the way I felt the first two had a chance of doing. Um, so in that sense, it, it's bizarre for me. I, I don't write, I haven't written previous things that were designed to shock or, or appall. Um, but there is art that conversely afflicted and art that afflicts the comfortable, and I think they both have their place. Um, that said, you know, I've, I've heard from a few people um, who were initially disturbed by the book and then it seemed to clarify something for them about themselves or about the world. And so it feels like a, a valid social project in that sense. Um, but as a piece of writing, I, I prefer it only because I think it, it sort of is evidence of me knowing a little bit better what I'm doing now than I did six years ago or, or three or four years ago. James. What about uh, you actually going off of your answer to that question also when you were describing the context of Harvard, it seemed like a lot of those chips were actually very similar to the context in Cabin Doyle. But there you have like a heartwarming, like you said, principled character. Yeah. So not the reader, what about your experience in the months and years like living with it? How was it different? And did you prefer living with the next yeah, I, I did. Um, <laughs> but it, it was interesting in the same way that I think watching movies or TV shows about anti-heroes can be interesting and exciting. That the transgressive rush of watching Tony Soprano or Walter White do bad things and, and cross lines that we are not allowed to cross or we don't let ourselves cross. So likewise, I think for the reader in this, there's probably, I hope, some of that sense. But for the read me as the writer, the sort of pushing boundaries that I had not pushed before. Um, in part, I think also because your first book, most first books are heartwarming for a very solid reason, which is that you don't want to introduce yourself to the world as sort of like a nihilist or cynic or anything like that. You want to show the best of your soul for your first book. And then once you get that out of your system, you start showing what's really there, clearly. Um, but I think it's that you, you can start exploring other facets of artistry, but also other facets of humans, and, and as opposed to simply, if I died tomorrow, here's the one book I'd want to be represent, a representation of myself. Anyone else? Yeah. My film agent is here. So what do you what do you think, Rich? <laughs> this one clearly you should be promoting this. <laughs> yeah, all of them. Uh, I actually do think this one because it's a tight, very tight narrative. It's the most complicated plotting of the, of the three books, um, and it has a hero who's very determined and driven for something, which is what you need in fiction, but you really need in movies. You need them to want something badly. And his obstacles are very clearly delineated, and he finds interesting ways around them. Um, I think the, the difficulty would be maybe that movie audiences aren't as likely to cotton to an unlikable protagonist as literary audiences are. 
but uh, movies like um, Nightcrawler, um, I think there's, there's, there's an audience for the sort of mixed anti-hero that does creepy things. And again, I think we're always interested in watching that transgressive act occur on screen. Yes? Yeah, so David is upper middle class, two lawyer parents. He's from suburban New Jersey. The girl he becomes obsessed with is from the super rich of the Upper East Side, wasp world, finance father, financier father. And that's really, although there's some sort of romantic attraction and sexual attraction and a desire for intimacy, what's really driving his his uh, desire for her is this sense that there's this chasm between where he is in the, as, as upper middle class resident and where she is as a member of the 1% or the 0.1%. Um, and the idea that implicitly in America, normally in this kind of book, it'd be a plucky working class hero who comes to Harvard and maybe gets involved with the rich girl and her world and learns about that in some way and retains his values. This is an upper middle class kid Yet still, this one percent is so far beyond him. It's 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 an unbridgeable chasm. Um, so that's the, one of the driving factors of it. And David is acutely aware that maybe the only way to get there is not by dint of hard work, or maybe he shouldn't care about this anyway in the first place, but through association with someone else who's already a member of it. Yeah, I'm curious about the, the female character, and it seems like you know you said. discussion now in colleges, especially elite colleges, about, you know, women who uh, are raped or, you know, that men act predatory towards them. Mm -hmm. It sounds like this is a character who's in this environment where people are very entitled and very Did you find that when you were hanging out with these kids? But it sounds like his attraction to this woman has to do with that he's sort of acquiring a status that he wants to have. Yeah. Those seven boys? I'll give their names. You can find them. Um, no, not those. They were like kind of nerdy, standard Harvard freshmen, just like probably they never, I don't mean to be glib, but probably had not like had girlfriends that year, that kind of thing. Um, if anything, they were, they were evincing to me the sort of sexual frustration of the lowly freshman boy uh, who's at the bottom of the pecking order. Um, yeah, they got into the club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they... No, but I think what interests me about David is that if he were simply a narcissistic, entitled little prick, that also wouldn't be of interest to me. What he, It's combined with this deep inferiority complex, too. So it goes both ways. And in most scenes, there's some contradictory impulse of feeling better as he, think he feels superior to his roommate there, yet is also hoping that someone else will upgrade him. Like He's not just simply lording over him. He, needs, he feels like he needs a, someone to boost him up. Um, and that combination is what compelled me to write about him. If he were simply a sort of self-loathing uh, guy throughout, that's not that necessarily fun to, to be around. And if you were just a sort of arrogant egotist, it would be he'd be insufferable too. But I, so I think again, what seems to draw some people in is this combination of really it's narcissism, which people think means you just are full of yourself, but narcissists often vacillate between loving and hating themselves. And I think that's 
what makes them sort of fascinating creatures. It's, it's frustrating to discuss any of it without giving anything away. Yeah. But I was wondering how you read it. Do you ever think about shifting from Sabita to her a little bit? Just, you know what I mean? Uh, I didn't want to give her her own point of view, but I, in the first draft, she was much more passive character who does nothing really. And in this, uh, my editor compelled me to think of a counter narrative, something else. So I won't reveal what it is for those of you who've not read it. But that was yeah, so I had to sort of figure out a way to have this like shadow plot that she's part of too, and that he gradually discovers or eventually discovers. But the idea is that he's so voyeuristically obsessive and stalking of her that it needed to be from his point of view consistently. The one point of view shift I did do is that in the first draft Veronica he just writes about her as, as she or, or her and I early on changed it to you. He dresses it to you the whole time which is her but that also again implicates the audience or the reader slightly and feeling as if he's talking to us or addressing us. Thank you guys so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.